Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. And I would ask you to please join me and stand as we welcome Bishop Morlino, and he opens with prayer. Thank you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful people and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, you have instructed the hearts of your faithful people by the light and the fire of your Holy Spirit. Grant that in this same spirit we might become ever more strong, loving, and wise. And may we always rejoice in the comfort and the courage which are the special gifts of the Spirit to us, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Eternal rest grant unto them, O Lord. May they rest in peace. May their souls and the souls of all the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Tonight, I thought... Uh, I talked to you about what we're going to be talking about for the next year in a special way, that is the recent synod. I thought some clarifications might be useful since in the media, with some truth, the uh, predominant characterization of the synod has been, quotes, confusing, confusing. And what I'd like to do is point out what I consider to be the four major areas of that confusion and try to shed a little light on those. Because there's no question that that midterm document of the Synod that mid-synod reflection, the likes of which was never issued before at any synod whatsoever. But this was issued, it came out of nowhere, and it really did cause a great deal of confusion and other emotions, both positive and negative in the church, positive or negative, depending on how people feel about the so-called spirit of Vatican II. Those who jumped for joy at the thought of the spirit of Vatican II were jumping for joy. And those who are more interested in the documents of Vatican II were saying, how could this be? It can be because the church is divine in its institution by Christ, but human in its members. 
And we never should be overly scandalized when the church shows her humanity. Remember how certain people at the time were scandalized at Jesus when he told them that he was the Son of God. They said, where does he get all of this? Isn't he Mary's son? We know who he is. Isn't he the son of the carpenter in Nazareth? And the author says there, he was altogether too much for them. They were scandalized that divinity could take flesh in humanity. And yet, that the humanity would not go away. How could God Almighty have been subject to Mary as his mother and Joseph as his foster father in a carpentership, carpenter business for 33 years? How could that have been? God doesn't do that. We know what God does. That's the Holy Spirit telling me that I'd better watch myself tonight. That's what, that's what the message of that is, whatever, whatever that is. I only know what my own sounds like. I don't know what the, that could have been a message from the space station as far as I know. So anyway, it's possible for people to be scandalized, offended by the humanity of the church, just as people were scandalized and offended by the humanity of Jesus Christ. So the first thing is we don't, when we see things in the church that are really human and that even show traces of human sinfulness, we don't go berserk. We don't say, oh my God, I never thought we'd have a pope that isn't Catholic. We, we don't want to say those things. The pope is the pope is the pope. I said that the last time I addressed this group. The pope is the pope is the pope. I am not the pope. Thank God. Neither is anybody else here. The Pope has the charism of Peter. Nobody else does. So if, see? <laughs> the Holy Spirit is happy at what I just said. When I say the Pope is the Pope is the Pope, the Holy Spirit chimes right in. Because nothing could be more true. But he is. And I've loved the Pope all my life. And what's going on in the church raises a lot of problems, makes a lot of extra work for bishops. <laughs> because now the Pope says something, the media misinterprets it, and then all kinds of priests and people come to me and say, why don't you do what Pope Francis does? And I always say, look, Pope Francis is very smart. Jesuit is very smart. He knows exactly how to change the law or the discipline. He knows exactly how it's done. 
He didn't do it. It didn't change anything. And we get more almost terrified by what the media suggests to us about Pope Francis, then we have a certain peace and serenity in the fact that he didn't change anything. And it should surprise no one that Jesuits like to rock the boat a little bit. <laughs> they like to stir up the waters. That's just a Jesuit being a Jesuit. But he hasn't changed anything, and he knows how. I think myself that he wants to get people's attention so that we start to think and talk seriously about things that we never think and talk seriously about. I think he wants to get us to take things seriously that we kind of take for granted, just presume and don't re-examine. I think that all of us in the spirit of St. Ignatius have to always give the other person the benefit of the doubt until the foolishness of that person is proven. And so often that will never be proven because what's being said isn't so foolish. But I want to urge you not to let the devil gets you in a stew about, geez, is that Pope really Catholic? But don't, don't let the devil do that to you. Nah, I'm not going to deny that certain cardinals and certain bishops say things, and I have to say to myself, is that Catholic? That's the humanity of the church, and that's different from the Pope, who knows exactly how to change things and hasn't changed a thing. And of course, the long-standing doctrine and discipline of the church, by and large, not in every instance, but by and large, the long-standing doctrine and the discipline of the church cannot be changed. There's no authority in this world that can change the truth of the natural law. There's no authority in this world that can change the truth of the divine law. And Pope Francis is smart, he knows that too. But I think Advent is gonna be a great season for us this year because what's the theme of Advent? Wake up! Well, he's got us awake. Never was the church less bored than it is right now. I get up in the morning and I say to myself, let me get on the internet and see what the media misinterpretation of the Pope for today is. Let me see what I'm going to have to wade into in a very short time. But it's good not to be bored and it's good to wake up and think seriously about things not to be so comfortable. That's what he wants. He wants us to notice things that we normally don't notice. And especially to notice people on the peripheries, the most helpless, the most poor, who often 
are missing from our consciousness because we think that because everybody and his or her brother practically is getting food stamps and there are so many Catholic organizations like the Knights of Columbus, like St. Vincent de Paul, like Catholic Charities reaching out. That's all taken care of. He wants every one of us to say, well, did I do anything about that today? Or do I just delegate that? And that's a, that question causes discomfort. It causes me discomfort. But we need that discomfort. Because maybe in all of our disagreements about things in the church and in the world, we've gotten too far from the most basic obligation that we have to our fellow human being. The Holy Spirit put Pope Francis in office. I don't really have any clear idea of what the Holy Spirit has in mind. But the Holy Spirit has in mind only what is best for the church. And so without expecting to be bored even for a second, I wait to see where this is going. A lot of Catholics would rather stay bored. So don't let the media get you in a tizzy about Pope Francis. The Holy Spirit, if you're the type who thinks, and this is not unreasonable, if you think Pope Francis needs to be kept under control, that's the Holy Spirit's job, not mine, <laughs> not yours. So let's be calm, cool, collected, and prayerful about this and not be stirred up into needless worry by the media. The media messed up the church after the Vatican Council. The media constructed the spirit of Vatican II. Then they constructed a spirit of Pope Francis. And now they're constructing the spirit of the synod. All of those spirits, as my friend Bishop Walker Nicholas of Sioux City, Iowa said, all of those spirits are demons that need to be exorcised. We want the real Vatican II, the real Pope Francis, and the real Synod. Now, those four areas that were particularly confused by the midterm synod document. Some of that confusion was clarified by the final report, and some of it wasn't. Pope Francis and the Holy Spirit want us to discuss the issue of the centrality of the family for the next year in preparation for synod number two. What is more basic to our society and to the church than the family. One husband, one wife, one lifetime with openness to children. That was God's plan from the very beginning. 
before there was any civil government. Civil governments, when they came along, had the family as one of their most basic building blocks. Family is far more fundamental than the government. How could the government ever change the definition of family? Can't be done. If there were no family unit, there would be no civil government. That's been presumed since the creation of human beings. Family came first. It is not good for the man to be alone, God said. And then he created Eve. And then he said to them, increase and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. There's the foundation of the family by God the Creator at the very beginning. Long before anybody thought about a civil society or a civil government. That was the primary community. And states and governments are other communities that are built on the family as on a cornerstone and that do not have any authority whatsoever to redefine family. States and governments redefine family because they think they're God and they're trying to impose a state secular religion on the whole country. Talk about taking away religious freedom. Not only is it being taken away, but they're trying to impose state secularism as a religion so that you cannot speak of the things of God in public. You gotta keep it in your church, keep it in your home. Don't dare say a prayer before a football game. How inhuman can we get? How inhuman can we get? Saying a prayer before a football game is what, once again, is keeping Notre Dame alive. <laughs> How could we say they shouldn't do that? They even got a Hail Mary call by the ref who missed something. It was the absence of a call. It was the absence of a call at the last game. All right. No human being in his or her identity can be reduced to his or her sexual orientation. If John is gay or Mary is lesbian, that doesn't exhaust their personhood before Almighty God, their sexual orientation. That's one aspect of their personhood among many. The Synod talks about the treasures that can be found, the gifts that can be found in every human being and that must be acknowledged in every human being, including gays and lesbians. There are treasures there, there are gifts. They are not reducible to their sexual orientation. There's so much more about them that can be wonderful and beautiful. 
there can't be anything wonderful or beautiful about homosexual behavior. The Synod did not say there was anything wonderful or beautiful about sexual behavior. The media said the Catholic Church now thinks that homosexual behavior is wonderful. Problem we have is that so many persons who are gay or lesbian insist that they reduce themselves to their sexual orientation. If you want to deal with me, the first thing you have to deal with is my homosexual behavior. If you don't want to deal with that, then you're a bigot and a hater. That's the problem. What Pope Francis wants to know is how could we get those people to stop doing that? He said early on, gay lobby, gay political tactics, gay pressure are not good. Because they take the whole mystery of the human person and reduce that mystery to the one aspect of their sexual orientation. Now we're not allowed to do that, that's uncharitable. I love to cook spaghetti carbonara. <laughs> and I look it. Now, just suppose, no matter who I met on a given day, they came up to me and they said, oh, you're the one who likes to cook spaghetti carbonara. If there's a world enough in time, I'll cook it for you and invite you over. Now let's move on to something else. It's never good to pigeonhole any person about any one thing, sexual orientation. Sometimes people make me think that they want me to go down the hallway and say to people, hello, you heterosexual you. How are you, you lesbian? We can't reduce people to any one aspect of themselves, including that one. We cannot neglect to see the gifts and the treasures that God created in every blessed human being, gay or lesbian or not. But if they insist that the only thing we can deal with them about is that they're gay and lesbian, then we got a problem. And that's the problem. How do we talk them out of doing that? How do we talk them out of making gay and lesbianism such, you know, a politically charged, pressured area so that we can't think about anything else when we deal with them? That's the problem. But that's the first clarification. Never let us allow ourselves to reduce someone to any one aspect of who they are. Let's never forget to look at the whole person, including the gifts and the treasures. That's all the Synod said. That's all Pope Francis said. That's why we don't have to read the Synod, get all upset about what the media said the Synod said, and then take gas and pray for a happy death. Okay. The second issue that needs to be clarified 
is the distinction between doctrine and practice. It was said at the Synod that there is not a cardinal or a bishop in this room who wants to change one little bit of doctrine. There's no one here who wants to change a doctrine. What we're talking about is changing a practice. Marriage is indissoluble. Marriage is forever. One who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, Jesus said. One of the cardinals said, oh, we really shouldn't say that because that's offensive to people. Well, that's right, your eminence, it is, but Jesus did say adultery. Jesus did say adultery because this is serious and it goes back to the beginning of creation. It's serious. We change the practice. And so, if a couple is married, divorced, there's no annulment, and they remarried, they remarry, they can still receive communion. Jesus said if they do that without an annulment, they are committing adultery. Do we hate people who commit adultery? No. We love them and try to offer them the love of Christ. But that doesn't change the fact that they're committing adultery. They're committing adultery. If one were to say those who divorce, remarry without an annulment may receive communion, that's a change in practice, they would say. But the doctrine is still the same. But that can't be. If you receive communion, the action which bespeaks full communion with the church, when in your living situation you're not in full communion with the church, the statement in receiving communion that you're in union with the church is theologically a lie. How could it be okay? to lie. People always say, the altar rail is no place for conflict. There should be no conflict at the altar rail. You know what I'm tempted to say when they say that? Does that mean that you're going to put the altar rail back? <laughs> Big smile, of course, when you say that. People who worry so much about conflict at the altar rail. Oh, look at that. Don't seem to worry that much about lying at the communion rail. You grow up there and say, I'm in full communion, receive communion, that's what it means. And you're not in full communion, how could that be okay? When it comes to that doctrine, the indissolubility of marriage, if you change the practice and allow divorced, remarried people without an annulment to receive communion, you're saying it's okay for them to lie at the communion rail. And, you know, to be honest, of course, anyone who knowingly receives communion, who is not properly disposed in a state of sanctifying grace, 
because of a mortal sin, they're not in full communion either. But their lack of full communion is probably not known to anyone but themselves. When someone divorces, remarries without an annulment, all of those are public acts and everybody knows. So it can never be okay to tell a public lie at the communion rail for anybody, for anybody. There are other practices that are not tied to doctrine, like don't eat meat on the Fridays of Lent. That's a practice. It's not tied to a doctrine. That can change. It has changed. But a doctrine that clothes a practice Excuse me, a practice that clothes a doctrine cannot be changed. We have to go back again and think about the incarnation, the humanness of the church, the taking flesh of the church. The eternal word, second person of the Trinity, took flesh in Jesus Christ. He became visible. The invisible God became visible. In the sacraments, invisible mysteries are made visible. That's the Catholic way of doing things. Churches are important to us. Magnificent church right here, St. John. That's important. Because there the glory of God, which is invisible to us, becomes very visible. And we need things to be visible because we have senses. We have bodies. We're made for visibility. Well, the practice which forbids communion to divorced, remarried people without an annulment, that doctrine is a visible sign that clothes that practice is an invisible sign that clothes the doctrine that marriage is insoluble. If marriage is insoluble, if that's the invisible doctrine, where do we see that doctrine? We see that doctrine in the practice where Catholics divorced without an annulment, remarried, do not receive communion. That is not a penalty. It's just a sacramental reality. Catholics divorced, remarried without a number are not being punished by not being able to receive communion. The church is just saying, look, if you receive communion under those circumstances, you are publicly lying at the communion rail saying that you're in full communion with the church when you're not, and that is a no-starter. That goes tilt. Lying at the communion rail goes tilt. There shouldn't be any conflict at the communion rail because no one should want to go there and lie. And people can peacefully and serenely accept the reality that their state in life causes them to abstain from the Eucharist. Their state in life 
causes them to sacrifice receiving the Eucharist. And they can do that out of a Christian love. I respect God too much to receive communion when I'm not in full communion with the church. My respect for God and for the church is too great. That's a holy thing. To have so much respect for God and the church that you acknowledge reality and refrain from communion when you're not in full communion is a grace. It's a grace of respect for God and the church. Respect for all brothers and sisters. I don't want to say at communion time that I'm in a place where I'm not. I don't want to kid myself or anybody else. Because I love and respect God and the church too much. That's the practice. And that can't be separated from the doctrine. You got that? That's a biggie. Anybody confused? <clears throat> I'm trying to clear it up, not make it worse. So if you're confused, ask a question. All right? Moving on to the third point, and this is a dandy. The Synod did give the impression that one way in which we could do the impossible that is, permit a kind of lying at the communion rail, is by applying the moral principle called the law of gradualism, or the law of graduality. Now, in Familiaris Consortio, the apostolic exhortation after the last synod on the family, 1981, Pope John Paul said, St. John Paul said, there is room in this area for an application of the law of gradualism, but that must never result in the gradualism of the law. Now that's confusing, isn't it? That's a dandy. Alright. What would be the gradualism of the law? Gradualism of the law means that the law applies differently to different people. Like, Father Greg is back there, he's strong in Christ. Because he's strong in Christ, there are certain things that are wrong for him to do. Because he's strong in Christ. And then there's Joey across the room who's weak in Christ. He's big into his weakness. So, the law that applies to Father Greg because he's strong in Christ, it doesn't apply to Joey because he's so weak. In other words, the law applies gradually. Depending on how strong you are or whatever, the law may apply or not. 
So a lot of these families out there are so weak that the indissoluble mar- uh, indissolubility of marriage for them is an unattainable ideal. It's a pie in the sky. It's a pie in the sky. So if your marriage is weak, you got a lot of problems, you can't be expected to live up to the indissolubility of marriage. So get divorced, get remarried, no annulment, come to communion because of your weakness. The law which forbids someone who is strong from remarrying without an annulment allows it for you. So the law doesn't apply the same to everybody. It applies gradually. That's the gradualism of the law. You see that? That's not a mystery, that's, you know. Forget about the expression, gradualism of the law. Forget that. Just see what it is. If you've got troubles and weaknesses, there's a different law for you than from somebody who doesn't have those troubles and weaknesses. Got it? That's simple enough. That can't be right. <laughs> It's worth understanding it because it can't be right. Christian morals are not an unattainable ideal. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, gives the gift of all the grace anybody needs to obey the moral law. It's not unattainable. It's not easy, but it's not unattainable. Christian morals is a morals of heroism. That's why we say every Christian, every disciple of Jesus is called to be a saint. One of the cardinals said the opposite of that. He said, if someone can really live up to the indissolubility of marriage, that is heroic, but it's not expected of most Catholics. Most Catholics cannot be heroic. Well, Vatican II, big thing. Every disciple of Jesus Christ is called to be a saint. Well, then every disciple of Jesus Christ is called to the heroic. Okay, is that clear? Now, there is, the law of gradualism is wrong. The gra- excuse me, see, I get confused too. The gradualism of the law is wrong. There is such a thing as the law of gradualism. When does that come up? It comes up between two people in absolute confidence, either in spiritual direction or in confession. Does it ever come up in the pulpit that we say, today we're going to go for the law of gradualism, from the pulpit, never. Why? Because misunderstanding is guaranteed 100%. Not from the pulpit. Two people in a relationship of strict confidentiality, confession or spiritual direction. This guy is coming to me and he says, Father, when we started a talk, 
I was committing adultery with three different women. I want you to know that by the grace of God, I got it down to one. <laughs> I got to tell them that's good. I'm serious. What's good? That he's still committing adultery with one? Absolutely not. What's good is that he's making progress. St. Alphonsus Liguori, the, the patron of all moral theologians, taught this. If that guy says, I got it down to one, don't tell him, well, get out of here, you poor devil, you're still trapped in your sins. Tell him that's pretty good. What's good is the lessening of evil. Not the doing of evil, but the lessening. That's what you do with the law of gradualism. It's for spiritual direction relationships, confessor-penitent relationships. And it's important. It's a principle of mercy. But never does the confessor say to the penitent, well, this is just fine now that you're only committing adultery from with one. That's down from three. Never says that. He said the fact that you are diminishing evil in your life is good. Let's keep it up right on. That's the principle, the law of gradualism which is completely different from the gradualism of the law. Do you see that? The gradualism of the law means different laws for different people. The law of gradualism means in a confidential relationship the ability to be merciful toward and to encourage someone who is not out of sin but they're making good progress. It's the progress that's good not the sin that they're still in. Okay? You're going to hear a lot about this. Gradualism. And I'll tell you why gradualism in the public realm is certainly doomed to be set aside. Because if you want to start applying gradualism in the public sphere, then it is not possible ever to have a zero-tolerance policy toward any misdeed, whatever it is. If there's gradualism, there's no zero-tolerance. And as you know right now, the bishops in this country have a stake in zero-tolerance, which people expect us to uphold. But there'll be a lot more discussion and probably a lot more confusion about this. But not among you. <laughs> not among you. All right. And the last point. The law of gradualism, as I just said, is a law of mercy. All of these confusing areas are caused by the good intention 
of many people to show a more merciful face on the part of the church. Pope Francis is a pope of mercy. But we have to remember that St. John Paul wrote his second major encyclical, Dives in Misericordia, on mercy. St. John Paul put in Divine Mercy Sunday for the whole church to celebrate. St. John Paul wrote a beautiful exhortation after one of the synods on the sacrament of penance, all about mercy. The media talk about Pope Francis as the Pope of Mercy, as though no Pope had ever had that thought, ever, ever, ever. <laughs> and that's just so. St. John Paul put mercy on the throne above all God's works. St. John Paul. And Pope Francis, indeed, is in continuity with that. But every word of God that's spoken, spoken by the Pope, spoken by bishops, spoken by priests, spoken by baptized faithful who are claiming to proclaim the word of God. The word of God always does two things. It has two effects. The word of God, first of all, consoles, and second of all, at the same time as it consoles, it judges. That's how you can measure whether something is truly the word of God. Does it both console and judge? The word of God is always full of mercy, consolation, and justice, judgment. The word of God consoles. The word of God judges. Some of the wording in the synod document doesn't seem to take that into account fully. <clears throat> document is so trying to promote mercy that it leaves the door open for a word of God to be spoken which consoles but does not judge. There is no such word of God. It always consoles and it always judges. Now, Please, God, if you've kind of taken in a lot of this by osmosis and the confusion of the next year continues, you will be part of the problem, not part of the solution. And that's my prayer in coming here tonight. It's my hope in coming here tonight. People ask me sometimes at the end of the day, did you have a good day? And even if the day was tough, I can always answer, I had a wonderful day. And they say, why is that? 
So because I didn't die and go to hell. It was a wonderful day. It's always possible to have a wonderful day. But we're not going to have a wonderful day if we expect things to go perfectly in the church right now. Because we do have a Pope sent by the Holy Spirit who said outright and clear, I want to rock the boat. I want to stir things up. Well, you're the Pope and I'm not. So you stir and I will be stirred. <laughs> I just hope that your stirrer is at least the size of a large paddle so that I can be stirred. Okay, so thanks for listening to all of that. It's always a joy to be among you, and God bless you all. Your Excellency, I'm most impressed that the Holy Spirit has your private number on your cell phone. But my real, my real question is, how might we expect to learn the official uh, results of the Synod? Well, the official results of the Synod won't be available until... Uh, September, October uh, 2015. October 2015. In other words, this synod was the beginning of a process leading up to another. This was an extraordinary synod. That means smaller than usual. That's not the ordinary meaning of extraordinary. <laughs> but in the church, an ordinary synod, an extraordinary synod means a gathering of the bishops of all, the presidents of all bishops' conferences in the world. Presidents of Episcopal conference. So that's a, that means one per diocese. And then there are certain observers who are bishops from the Eastern Rites. And then there are other bishops there who are not there as delegates or representatives but they're there because they're either on the Synod Commission, the Permanent Commission, or they hold offices in the Vatican. So in addition to Archbishop Kurtz, the president of our conference, we had Cardinal Dolan there and Cardinal Whirl because they're on the Permanent Commission for the Synod, and they will be there the next time. The next time the bishops get to, the American bishops get to elect for delegates, and we'll do that in Baltimore next week. Okay, so um, the Extraordinary Synod leads up to the Extraordinary Synod, which will be considerably larger, and which will happen after these documents have been digested and uh, we have a chance to uh, respond to them. Every bishop in the world will have meetings with his consultative bodies, about these documents and will send uh, a summary of the responses back to Rome. Okay, so that's when we'll have the final. The final thing will be a document written by the Pope called an Apostolic Exhortation. Um, this uh, latest thing with the Senate and now the, with the family uh, reminds me a lot, and I have been reading all the different websites, uh, a lot of like deja vu of the church 50 years ago when Catholics started 
divorcing and remarrying. And the, you know, the theme was who will be the judge, uh, what, not real solid guidance. So everyone was doing their own thing. And I, and I get the impression or feeling that this is going to be going on with the same sex, uh, issue. Well, that's, that's not really a question. That's, <laughs> and I you get the here. feeling that this is going to be going on with the same sex issue. Well, it's going, it's going to, uh, it's going to go on. Um, there's no question that the media, I said this at the beginning, the media created a spirit of Vatican II as opposed to the true Vatican II. They've created a spirit of Pope Francis as opposed to the real Pope Francis, and they're now trying to create a spirit of the synod rather than the real synod. A lot of people read the papers and believe what they read. So yeah, I have the feeling too that there's going to be uh, a lot of misleading stuff said with regard to same-sex marriage. And uh, one of the worst things though that's said with regard to it is that that issue is finished, we're finished, that's now settled. Well. It can't be settled because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, and that's not where he landed. He didn't land on same-sex marriage, so it can't be settled. So then we've got to keep doing what we can do. Okay? What would you recommend as either good sites or good credible information, websites, credible information that will not be as... Uh, Confusing, um, is, or, or does that exist? Like I was just going to say, if there were credible, such credible websites, we wouldn't have all this confusion. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, all of the websites are somewhat uneven. I mean, there are people who have websites who never intend to deceive, like Father Z. And there's a lot of good stuff on Father Z. I'm a little prejudiced. Father Z lives in our chance rebuilding. <laughs> and uh, Father Z talks to me a lot about how to do things. And uh, he's doing great, great work in the Diocese of Madison to help people learn the richness of the uh, extraordinary form of the Tridentine Rite, and I value him a great deal as a collaborator. But he's pretty much on the, but every so often he gets his comeuppance too, and you know, he, he'll exaggerate a little bit. Not too much. If he was an Italian like me, he'd really exaggerate. <laughs> Italians, you know, have to exaggerate. That's why they had the lira. You know, a thousand, a thousand, talk about exaggerating currency, a thousand lira to a dollar. For a dollar you could get a thousand lira. If you went to buy a nice suit, it would be three million lira. <laughs> Italians love to exaggerate. And you feel so powerful when you buy a three million dollar suit. That's how that goes. But a father, I mean, he'd be as reliable as you can get on there. 
But there, you know, there's, 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 no, uh, there's no perfect anything in this world. That's why, you know, we see all things, these things that can go wrong. We say, well, isn't that something? Something, something went wrong. Well, this obviously isn't heaven. So we say, we long for heaven. It's not going to be here. Things are going to be imperfect. See, sometimes people are struggling, but they're not willing to sit down and talk for an hour about the struggle. They want a quick fix. And if people want a quick fix, they say, well, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I, every day I tell the seminarians, get up in the morning, look in the mirror, make sure you're wide awake, drink coffee before you do this. Stare yourself desperately in the eye and say, and mean it, I am not the Messiah. So if somebody's struggling and they don't want to even give me an hour to talk about it, I'm not the Messiah. <laughs> I'm not, I mean, remember that. That's, that's how John the Baptist answered the question, who are you? The first thing he didn't, he didn't say who he was. He told them who he wasn't. He said, I am not the Messiah. So why should I be ashamed to do that? And by the way, keep St. John the Baptist in mind because he's the patron saint of the politically incorrect. <laughs> he spoke out about marriage. He laid down his life for the marriage bond. He spoke out about marriage to Herod and Herodias and you know what he got. So, he's the patron saint of the politically correct he died for the marriage bond. We need to pray to him more than ever these days. Maybe I missed something, but there is, is there any way that divorced and remarried Catholics can return to the communion of the full communion of the church? Well, they would have to live as brother and sister. And uh, so, see, when you go to confession, you have to say, I'm sorry, in the sense of, I'm going to really try not to do it anymore. And you really got to mean that. So if they were to try to live as brothers and sisters, really try out of sorrow for their sin. And, you know, occasionally they slip. However, they go back to confession and then it's all right. Because to be a Catholic in good standing doesn't mean you don't sin then none of us would be in good standing. <laughs> but it means you go to confession sincerely, and if you say you're sorry for something, you're going to try to stop it. Blessed be the name of the Lord, now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down upon you all, and remain forever. Amen. Safe home. I had a ball and I hope you did too. Thank you so much, Your Excellency. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-2000.
7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.